Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. Executive Director Abby Mitch of Michigan Rising Action and Executive Director Maureen O'Taylor II of the Fund My Future Coalition join for the show's inaugural conservative versus progressive post-state-of-the-state matchup. But the two are surprised by how much they agreed in terms of disappointments and questions about funding. Abby highlights how in 2024, Republicans and Democrats in Michigan will be competing for the same turf of voters. We're all looking at capturing the hope and imagination of that high propensity earner, what should be the high propensity earner in our economy, that 35 to 45 voter that's working hard, can't seem to grab together enough for a, ho- for a good house payment. Uh, can't seem to afford a new car. Like, that is the person I think we are all chasing in 2024. Also, Tyler Thiel, the Public Policy and Economic Analysis Director of the Anderson Economic Group, gives her economist reactions to the governor's policy vision for 2024. And Senator Stephanie Chang, a Detroit Democrat, and Oakland County Water Commissioner Jim Nash explain why they're advocating for the creation of a statewide low-income water residential affordability program fund. Now, here's MERS podcast hosts Samantha Schreiber and editor Kyle Malin. Thank you so much, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Believe it or not, everyone, we are at the final week of January 2024, with this being the earliest new week to follow the governor's State of the State address. We are joined by two individuals we have had on the show before, Executive Director Abby Mitch of the Conservative Principles nonprofit Michigan Rising Action. Hey, Abby, how are you today? Good. How are you, Sam? I'm doing great. And we are also joined by Moreno Taylor II, a former regional political organizer for the Michigan Democratic Party and the present day executive director of the Fund My Future Coalition, which advocates for more funding streams for state public services. Hey, Moreno, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. We are here for what I am titling our conservative and progressive post-state-of-the-state matchup, which maybe if it goes well, this can be an annual festivity. But right now, we are attempting a bit of a political podcast experiment on MERS Monday today. Uh, Obviously, last week in a series of 80s musical music-themed remarks, the governor illustrated her vision for the new 2024 But before I kind of dive into State of the State, I want to ask a spicy political question following this weekend's football game. And I'll start with you, Marino. Uh, Which 2020 matchup, uh, which 2020 repeat do you think Michiganders are least enthusiastic about? Another 2020, similar 2020 Biden versus Trump election matchup or another uh, Chiefs versus 49ers Super Bowl? I definitely would have to say after uh, this week, the Chiefs versus 49ers, you know, we uh, got that close. I mean, one half away from the Super Bowl. So I think it's going to be pretty tough for folks to tune in uh, in a couple of weeks. And I don't think the ratings for Michigan are probably going to be too strong. (laughs) What what about you, Abby? Which one do you think Michiganders are most bummed out about? Well, we're already starting off on a very agreeable note because I'm going to go with the Super Bowl. 
But I mean, just again, to kind of dive into state of the state, uh, you know, the governor illustrated how her vision in terms of new policies calls for universal universal pre-K for all youths and community college for all high school graduates, research and development tax credits for businesses conducting R&D in the state, and an up to $5,000 debut Caring for Michigan tax credit aimed at assisting residents overseeing uh, the care for seriously ill and aging relatives. Uh, you know, just to kind of kick things off, and I'll start with you, Abby, uh, you know, what is the significance of a state of the state policy shout out? What does it actually mean? Does it mean that the fate of these policies are sealed? What's the importance here? Uh, I think there's a long trail of former governors that would not tell you the state of the state is a signed and delivered policy uh, success. I guess in terms of a shout out, I mean, I think what we're seeing is the greatest hits of things that pull tested well. Um, there's very little on detail, uh, as many news outlets reported over the following week. There is nothing, um, it's not obvious how these things are going to be paid for. So it really remains to be seen if any real relief is going to be felt for this sort of cherry picked group of beneficiaries. Now I'll side over to you, Marino. I mean, what seemed like the most practical and the most doable for the governor and what kind of came off as like the heaviest lift? You know, I think the uh, the pre-K would be something that I can see possibly getting through before the end of this year. Um, universal pre-K is something that I think that could be monumental for folks all over the state, whether it be urban or rural. You know, folks, kids getting a chance to get into pre-K and get that early exposure, whether it be educationally or socially, puts them on the right path for, you know, that next step in education. Sadly, I kind of think the the healthcare tax credit might be the heavier lift. You know, I think I I would assume that tax credits and cutting taxes would be pretty popular um, on both sides of the aisle. But for some reason, I just kind of see a little uh, bumpy road. I'm going to jump in there and say I I agree with you. I mean, to the extent that government growing itself is always a success. Government is very good at getting bigger, adding universal pre-K to the public school system probably the most doable thing. I think where the bottleneck is that no one from the Whitmer administration has addressed is where are you going to get the increased number of early childhood educators you're going to need? Part of the reason pre-K is so expensive is because it is a scarce resource. And that's where the proposal for me falls flat. Well, I also think when it comes to that caregiver tax credit proposal, a part of me wondered when I saw that in the leaks for the state of the state address, is this the governor saying very discreetly, hey, paid family leave, something that she had advocated before back in August, called the legislature to do. Is this her ultimately saying, hey, I couldn't pull off paid family leave, so maybe let's try a tax credit to get some bipartisan kumbaya here? Marino, I don't know how many people you know that are taking care of a, of a chronically ill or aging loved one, but a tax credit is not super helpful in the moment. Um, you're looking at people who are trying to figure out how the budget all fits month to month to month and looking forward to your $5,000 back at the end of the year. I'm not going to say no to it if I'm in that position, but I'm certainly uh, not looking at it as a lifeline either. You know, I definitely think that paid family leave would have been uh, a little more impactful for folks' lives just because of the flexibility involved there. But, you know, this could definitely be a uh, olive branch of sorts, given that uh, there has been no action whatsoever on bills already introduced. There's been no bills announced that are planning to be introduced. And so we kind of have to assume that 
paid family leave is probably uh, not something we'll see mentioned too much this year. So, you know, just personally, I do know quite a few folks, you know, even myself um, and my mother is taking care of my grandmother. So I do think that, you know, this tax credit is something that could potentially, you know, cross a lot of generational and socioeconomic lines, you know, as Whitmer first noted in her first term, I think, you know, we are really coming into that sandwich generation where, you know, you have a lot of folks who are going to be taking care of elder relatives while at the same time trying to, you know, figure out how they're going to find childcare for kids. So, you know, every little bit helps. And I think the most important thing that they have to figure out is where's the money going to come from. What was striking to me here is that it, it seemed like the governor went to great lengths to try and be good with the business community, um, whether it's not mentioning the uh, paid leave proposal or talking about the R&D tax credit or Renaissance zones or talking about um, making this, uh, bringing back good jobs, rebranding the good jobs program and, and turning that into something. She went to great lengths. And Marino, that had to be a little discouraging for you because it seemed more political than maybe kind of setting the tone for something down the line. Well, I can definitely say, you know, uh, it's been a troubling uh, legislative session. I'll just say that, you know, I'm sure with a Democratic trifecta, we would have liked to have seen a lot of things get accomplished. But given the slim majorities, you know, we kind of went in with realistic expectations and, you know, they did a pretty good job checking off uh, the low hanging fruit and, you know, the things that they could get accomplished. And looking at 24, you know, as optimistic as I'd like to be, I'm going to remain one of those uh, cautiously optimistic slash realistic folks since I've been around Lance for a while. You know, it's an election year. The House is divided. I honestly don't see a ton of major legislation coming through this year. And so, yeah, it is pretty frustrating. You know, we represent folks who are really trying to help our elected officials understand the sense of urgency needed in addressing these funding issues. You know, we really need to get this funding back to local communities and more investments in Michigan residents so that folks, you know, can really reverse this population loss trend. And, uh, you know, just historically, I'd say, you know, some of the biggest uh, advocates are the folks who are from Michigan who left. You know, I'm sure we've all probably had a friend move out of state and call us and say, hey, you got to come check this out. You should move here. And so the one thing that we can do is really invest more resources and dollars into Michigan residents and communities so that maybe we'll start making those calls to our friends and say, hey, you know, you got to come back and check this out. I know, uh, you know, when you left, things were, you know, one way, but, you know, we've really turned things around. So what, what did it tell you, Abby, that the governor reached out to the business community in that way and appeared not to be trying to pick fights? Well, when I heard her trickle down economics plan, basically, I was sort of wondering to myself whether or not it was another 1980s pun that just didn't land. I don't see how more corporate welfare for one or two industries is going to lift our overall economic condition. At the end of the day, what people want is to not be $11,000 in the hole after working hard all year, which is what Cranes reported, I think, last week. We are falling further and further behind no matter how hard we work. And nothing that we heard on January 24th does anything except create a little bit of a band-aid to get people from this year to the next. But it isn't going to grow the kind of generational wealth that makes Michigan truly successful now in the long term. I think I was a little bit confused, though, by Republican opposition because I have heard Republicans advocate for things like a research and development tax credit, um, advocate things for like a per child tax credit. 
Um, I've also heard, you know, just this sentiment of wanting to step away from the SOAR fund, giving a business a check, and then going more toward tax exemptions. That is a really great point. Because these things aren't bad ideas. They're bad ideas in a vacuum. If you don't have a business climate that is healthy, where you can capitalize on a glut of research and development, capitalize on a glut of people employed with high paying, good quality, long lasting jobs, you're basically just putting the, the, the state into a financial hole by giving businesses tax cuts without any real growth in the economy and diversity in the economy. And I would echo that. You know, I think that, you know, rehashing trickle-down economics policies that have proved to be ineffective, and not to mention the lack of transparency involved with the economic development funds. You know, I think it's very difficult for the people of Michigan to just put their trust in our elected officials, you know, and assume that these billions of dollars that we throw out to, you know, and honestly, we, we're picking winners and losers, and, uh, you know, we have to find a better way in terms of economic development. And I think, you know, conversations are happening now that are vital in terms of bringing this into a more regional approach. Um, given, you know, the growing Michigan Together Council and some of the controversy, you know, surrounding that, uh, Kyle, I definitely think that, you know, the governor made a concerted effort to make sure that the business community, you know, understood that she is still on board with a lot of the, you know, things that are happening. Um, you know, she needs them in many ways, especially going into an election year. And so I definitely think she wanted to make sure that they felt uh, a little more comfortable, given, you know, some of the topics of conversation um, that came out after the report uh, was released. I do wish that there had been maybe uh, some more specific recommendations in terms of, you know, how we are going to pay for, you know, the things that we say we need to make Michigan this place that, uh, you know, we laid out for this 2050 vision. But Abby, I wanted to ask you what you have thought so far about how Matt Hall is doing with this 54-54 split. But Marino had mentioned earlier that he didn't really expect much to get done in this session. And it does seem like Matt Hall is fixated right now on some type of shared power arrangement between now and April when these special elections for the legislature are supposed to be completed and presumably the Democrats will be back in charge. Has he done a good job up to this point and is is pushing some kind of shared power arrangement, the right tack to take at this point. Here's what I'm going to say is I think that Leader Hall and all of the other Republican caucus members here, all the same things that we do, that people can't figure out how to make their grocery bill get low enough. They're sick of talking about their family budget every other week because money just doesn't go as far as it should. I think a good faith effort to try and ease that pain is doing the right thing. Um, whether or not it's correct politics, I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback, especially not today uh, <laughs> after yesterday's football showing. But, you know, I, you know, anyone who is willing to put forward a good faith effort to make Michiganders hard work pay off. Good job. Marino, is there something that you think that the the Democrats could offer Republicans to get kind of the, the wheels turning a little bit, get the gears turning? Because right now it just seems like the the Republicans don't even want to pass bills from their own party members, let alone uh, anything of substance? You know, that's a great question, Kyle. You know, I'm not exactly sure. If you had asked me that question maybe five, ten years ago, I definitely think that I'd have something off the top of my head. But, you know, these are very interesting times. And I think with the dysfunction within the Republican Party nationally, and then, of course, you have what's going on here in Michigan as well. You know, I think it really 
it really leaves a lot to be desired. I, I would hope that, you know, of course, the two could have come to some sort of agreement on a tax cut. You know, I don't see how Republicans would not be supportive of some sort of tax credit, tax cut. You know, I think that's what they always say they want, right? But given the partisan nature and the split in the House, I just cannot see uh, exactly what that um, issue might be that would bring them together and hopefully, uh, you know, get the grease the wheels a bit. <laughs> so can I zoom out for a second? How tone deaf is this state of the state when a week later you have a progressive and a conservative on the same podcast and we can't find a place to like thoroughly disagree i mean that i think tells you the state of the state completely missed the mark on what michiganders really are looking for you know i also want to ask about messaging too because right now republicans the legislature have this message of talking about the automatic automatic income tax rollback from last year uh, you saw it go down for individuals from 4.25% to 4.05% um now it's going to go back up to 4.25% you know can republicans are are they in a good position to say hey, the governor refused to protect this income tax rollback for individuals, but she's giving all of these extra bonuses to tech companies and Ford and businesses. You look like you got thoughts, and I'm going to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> you you bring up a great point there. I'm not going to lie. I'm just asking out of curiosity. I am a, I'm a reporter. I'm just wondering, just asking. You know, I will I will give Republicans this. I think their messaging the past few cycles has gotten much better. And uh, when I first took this position, I think um, listening to some of the Senate Republican no vote explanations on the SOAR package, I honestly couldn't tell who was speaking. You know, I was hearing some things that really just resonated with me in terms of to a point where I thought they might have been reading our messaging. I don't know. But <laughs> I definitely think that both parties um need to take a step back, take a deep breath, remember what they're trying to accomplish and who their base are, and then try to, you know, really speak directly to them. You know, I can't help but uh, think of national politics as well, but I definitely feel like, you know, there's a lot of conversations happening right now in regards to whether Democrats are attuned to their base. And uh, I think it would behoove folks to really take that into consideration because there's a lot of folks out here who are struggling who are, you know, trying to figure out how to make ends meet every day, and they just don't feel seen or heard by their elected officials. And, you know, we have to fix that. I mean, I can't figure out why Democrats are doubling down on this lie to themselves that you can somehow push for an accelerated EV future and think that the people that build the cars and buy the things that go to building the cars that up and down the auto industry are some thinking there's this massive demand for electric cars. I just, I don't know what the end game is there. And, you know, I think uh, since you bring up the the auto uh, topic, you know, I think it's very important that, you know, folks not forget what happened in 2023. You know, the UAW, I think, really laid out a vision and a path for how you speak to working people. And for some reason, it feels like the Democrats maybe didn't pay as close, as close attention as they should. Definitely not, because the upshot solution was to give people a pittance for a brand new car for people who probably can't afford a brand new car. Can't disagree with you there. You know, as someone who has worked hard and as a 40-year-old 40, 40 man now, oh gosh, I'm getting old. God, I probably couldn't afford to purchase the vehicle that my mother builds at Chrysler until two years ago. 
So I definitely think we have a lot of work to do just in terms of, uh, you know, rebuilding that American dream and trying to make sure that, you know, we close those cracks. You know, we have way too many folks, you know, falling through the cracks. And so that's why I think that that universal pre-K is a great start. You know, hopefully it at least uh, gets us all started off on the right foot. But, you know, in terms of just trying to make sure that we address the elephant in the room, which is that we already don't have enough funding for the things that we need to do and have serious conversations about how do we identify, you know, what's important, what are our priorities? And, you know, if we say that education is important, we can't just say it, you know, we actually have to make things happen. Kyle, I feel like this is much more of a uh, peaceful discussion than what we were anticipating when we invited Abby and Marino <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, I know. Can I ask a philosophical question here, Abby? I want to get your to uh, Sam's initial question about the Super Bowl and Biden and Trump. Why do you believe Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch and yet we are going to likely have one where is why why is trump and biden likely to win the nomination when the polling would seem to indicate we really don't want one but we're getting one why is that oh boy all right i'll be in college philosophy department are you listening uh, yeah i am that's why i asked the question i knew you'd give me a good, good answer i'm trying to figure out the sociology here how is this happening all right, I'm not gonna get, I don't think it's really that complicated. I think people wanna be able to go to Thanksgiving, Christmas, and their kids' birthday parties without arguing, brutal, brutally arguing with their family members and friends anymore. I think that's why people don't wanna see a Trump-Biden matchup. They just want politics to get the hell out of their daily lives. Great. I think the reason you're seeing it again is because you have two camps of Americans. You have your uh, urban ivory tower coastal set that believe that they can centrally control and, and run the country a very certain way and get a good outcome. And then you have the rest of America that just wants to be seen and understood how hard they're working and how much they're suffering by the person that represents them. But why Trump and why Biden? Because I've got this philosophy that, that people in general are not as dialed into the politics as maybe we are in maybe 20 or 25% of the voting population. And the rest of the 75% have so detached themselves from the um, the tension from 2020 that they've just resigned themselves to, okay, I'll go ahead and vote when I have to, but I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty the way that I did before. So if it was Biden before, I'm going to, I'm just going to go ahead and do Biden again. And if it's Trump before, yeah, I guess he's the devil we know. So we're, we'll go ahead and do that. But I'm not doing any more deep dives. I'm not going to be looking for anything else. I don't really want to get involved but I'm going to get involved because it's my American duty. What do you think about that theory, Marino? You know, I definitely feel like uh, both political parties and, you know, our democracy as a, as a whole is, you know, really at a precarious position. You know, I think we're getting the Trump-Biden matchup probably because it's the easiest for the parties at this moment. Um, you know, you have a lot of folks, I think, who are at, a, at that cusp where, you know, the next presidential election cycle will probably have 62 people running for each party. But at this moment in time, no one wants to be that person that says, you know, okay, we got to kick Joe Biden or, hey, we have to kick Trump aside. But that's honestly the problem is we're lacking leadership. We need folks who are going to step out of line and say the things that need to be said. So let me ask you this. Do you think Gretchen Whitmer is that person? I think that she can be. 
You know, I think she has learned tremendously over the course of her uh, governorship. And, you know, when I look around the, the nation, you know, I just can't think of too many folks that stand out as someone who's willing to, you know, sort of build the bridges necessary to be president. Yeah, I think she shows up, but boy, I mean, if she thinks she's serving the general public, woof. Well, then on the Republican side, Abby, who's the Republican? Who Who is the Trump alternative? Is it Nikki Haley? I mean, we just had a whole slate of people <laughs> that are dying off one by one. So there is no alternative, then, is what you're saying, because Nikki Haley's a sandwich away from being gone, too. Well, I don't I don't control the the primary system and maybe that's a whole separate podcast i know we're at the end of time here but i do have just two i mean i'm gonna ask two quick questions i mean marino when you think about your own party are you concerned about turnout because there were some young people there were some new democratic voters that casted ballots in 2020 thinking that biden was going to be a one-term president and now they're like wait a second we don't get a primary with a bunch of new shiny candidates uh Turnout is always something that I'm worried about, I would say, you know, whether it be, you know, weather-wise, world politics, but this year definitely feels different. You know, I think with everything going on in the Middle East, um, with the fact that, you know, many folks I think were expecting um, Biden, as he said, to be a transitional president. And so to, in many ways, have the rug pulled out from under them, I think, you know, you we do have a lot of work to do in terms of, one, the... Arab American community, as well as with the youth. But, you know, I've been an organizer longer than anything else. And I can tell you the youth vote is always something you're constantly working to cultivate. And so the one um, bit of optimism that I have is that the youth are a lot more engaged than the youth of my day were. <laughs> um, you know, I still honestly feel there's a huge gap in politics in terms of the 35 to 45 50 African-American male crowd, but these kids, you know, whether it be the housing advocacy, whether it be, you know, youth education advocacy, the gun violence, they are extremely active. And so, you know, there's, that's the only bright light I would say um, in terms of turnout. But if, uh, if folks don't really start acknowledging that there are issues first and foremost and meeting folks where they are, instead of trying to pretend that everything's fine, everything's great, just vote for us, everything will be fine. Um, we really have to acknowledge the pain and the hurt and you know the fact that folks are struggling. And once you start there, I think you have a lot uh, better chance at bringing these folks back into the fold. Uh, Abby, what, what voter groups do you think Republicans, especially in the fight to take back the Michigan House, I mean, what voter groups do you think they <clears throat> need to be zoomed in on in order to have success in 2024? I mean, I think everyone is more or less fighting for a piece of the same turf. We're all looking at capturing the hope and imagination of that high propensity earner, what should be the high propensity earner in our economy, that 35 to 45 voter that's working hard, can't seem to grab together enough for a, house, for a good house payment, uh, can't seem to afford a new car. Like that is the person I think we are all chasing in 2024 and i have to agree with marino i think i think this next generation of voters is so dialed into the specifics in a way that is impressive and interesting and and i i look forward to you know spending another election cycle building those relationships 
Abby Mitch of the nonprofit Michigan Rising Action and Marino Taylor II of the Fund My Future Coalition. Thank you both so much for joining the initial uh, MERS Monday conservative progressive state of the state matchup. I had a fantastic time talking to all of you. Joining us for our second segment of the MERS Monday podcast is Tyler Thiel, the Director of Public Policy and Economic Analysis with the East Lansing-based Anderson Economic Group. Hi, Tyler. How are you? Hello, Sam. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. So we are pre-recording this specific segment on January 26th, the Friday of the State of the State week for all of those who celebrate. Uh, the governor during her State of the State remarks said the vision is to keep lowering costs, improving education, and making more stuff in the state, making Michigan a competitor in the world. Now, as we let those proposals sink in, we ask, what exactly do they really mean? And how much will all of this cost? Uh, Tyler, just to kick off our conversation, as an economist, what was running through your mind when you watched the governor's State of the State address this past week? Well, to be totally honest, I have had the benefit and the privilege of um, participating in some Fix My State Coalition meetings recently attending um, the Detroit Policy Conference 2024 um, down in Detroit a couple of weeks ago. So I had heard a great deal of detail about, you know, the, the state of the state in a really data heavy way and what folks are trying to do about it. So I was able to see where she was giving nods to those issues that were raised. But um, in the in the state of the state as a whole, it kind of went by really quickly for me. I felt like there was a lot of detail missing um, that the average person at home may have benefited from hearing. I, I get it. It's kind of um, it's become sort of a fun political event where maybe you don't dive too far into the details, just kind of take a lap and try to make everybody feel good on a cold Tuesday <laughs> in the winter. But I think there's a lot of, of detail that can be added to the conversation. Now, kind of one of the initial things I wanted to ask you about, in the governor's state of the state address, she said the state paid down $18 billion in debt. Uh, based on your assessments, where did that $18 billion number come from? Uh, the state will continue paying off its rebuilding Michigan bonds to private investors and has made multiple ongoing commitments in terms of tax-free public pensions, a state-funded scholarship program for higher education, and free lunches for all youths in schools. Uh, I, I think overall, my question here is that um, isn't more debt inevitable? And where does this significant conversation of debt payment originate from? Yeah, so um, there are scheduled debt payments every year. The uh, Michigan Treasury operates in a very structured manner where there are debt payments that are obligated to be made. They're planned far out into the future. They're part of um, statute as it is written. Um, for example, when we analyze the fiscal impact of like a new, say a new solar development in the state of Michigan, a big part of what we look at is the new property tax contributions that will pay down school debt in that district because the millages are already in place. The obligation to pay those property taxes and the amount of them that will go to school debt is already in place. So um, maybe she wanted to point this out because um, they're a little bit ahead of scheduled payments since she took office or, you know, they haven't um, backed out on any of the debt payments. 
but I think she was um, here just kind of reporting something that is true and was accomplished and, um, you know, was was a long term obligation. So just to confirm, I mean, based off of your understanding, this isn't a new number. This is based off of routine payments that the state always is committed to. Yeah, that's my understanding. And certainly um, different administrations over time have done better or worse at making those routine payments and being committed to them. You know, every so often we talk about um, extending pension fund debt for teachers. Um, we found that that's much more costly than it is beneficial in the short term, but still some administrations consider that. Um, and it's definitely worth a pat on the back <laughs> if, if no one does that in a, in a given fiscal year. Um, and to the other part of your question, you know, more debt may be inevitable, but some of the programs um, she has implemented were born out of a budget surplus and um, pandemic funds. So those have to be set, spent on certain initiatives within certain time windows. So that's part of it. Um, if state funds are used wisely, new programs don't always mean new spending. Um, if ineffective or unused programs are discontinued at the same time, on the whole, our tax burden is, is pretty low in Michigan. Um, Anderson Economic Group included put a lot of effort into working at that over the years. Um, and so now if you rank Michigan amongst all 50 states, in some cases, we haven't been taxing um, at the maximum rate that statute would allow. I would add, you know, John Ricolta is the co-chair right now of the Grow Michigan effort, and he's indicated he's committed to supporting growth in ways that are revenue neutral. So it's it's hard to assess without more detail. But, you know, I think positive action can be taken. New policies can be put in place without um, additional debt if they're done carefully and responsibly. Tyler, do we have a good idea of how much debt the state of Michigan is carrying now compared to when the governor took office? You know, I don't have that number off the top of my head. Um, I usually trust Michigan Treasury or Senate Fiscal, Fiscal Agency, um, you know, with the numbers they put out on that. If I had to guess, it is probably more debt than we were carrying when she took office. But like I said, the surplus pandemic funds, um, some revenue neutral changes, staying up on scheduled long-term debt payments, it, it kind of rides out, especially in times where interest rates are incredibly low. It can be smarter to carry debt than, than use cash on hand. Even if we're carrying more debt than we did when the governor took office, that's not a, necessarily a, a sign of alarm if that debt was locked in with real low interest rates, like maybe with the, the bonding of the road program that she did. I would agree. Now, I want to ask about something that was a hot state of the state topic. Uh, the governor called for free community college for all high school seniors in her state of the state address. Is such a proposal economically feasible, though? Uh, you know, I think education is extremely valuable in Michigan. With our declining population and the demographic shift that we are experiencing and are going to experience in the coming days and the high-tech industries we want to have here, we really have to increase our rate of higher educational attainment to even compete with our neighbors. We need to have that talent pipeline. I've been hearing about a lot about changing the mindset from K-12 to P-14 or even P-16. And that really is one of the great ways to attract the 18 to 34-year-old demographic um, who we do indeed desperately need to attract in the coming de decades. Sure, they could add um, you know, income thresholds or eligibility requirements to these policies to um, get them tightened in and more carefully written. 
Uh, but as those are implemented, we definitely need to think about competition and diversity among the kids going straight into four-year programs as well. GPA thresholds would have to be considered very delicately. Those with a lower GPA may need community college the most. So, you know, on the whole, I would say I really support anything that helps to increase our higher education pipeline and to promote programs that then keep our graduates here. But they have to be done carefully, as you mentioned, to make it feasible. And I know that currently in Michigan, we have a reconnect program that offers free community college opportunities for 21 and up. Um, What has your firm seen as the value of that program? Well, so that's really a great second chance program. If you think about someone about 17 or 18 to 21 who graduates and thinks that they can earn the lifestyle and build the lifestyle they want without a degree, and then within a couple of years, they find out that is not the case. Giving that second chance, I think, uh, is really important. Um, That little bit of added education really increases lifetime earnings. It makes that person more capable of contributing um, long-term to the type of highly skilled jobs we want to attract businesses for hiring in Michigan. So it's a good program on the whole. Um, For the most part, it's it's pretty hard to have the costs outweigh the benefits of additional higher ed. As the governor was giving her state of the state address, were you did you have your adding machine right by your computer and and adding up all the costs that this was going to create? And um, is it is it something that can be absorbed within the current budget? Without a lot of detail. I haven't made any conclusions either way yet. It it will be disappointing if these are written in a way that just recklessly spends money. But if these policies are proposed and implemented in a way that's really careful, um, if at the same time waste and ineffective programs are ditched or allowed to expire, some of these programs could be implemented in revenue neutral ways. And some of them aren't really new. You know, as you touched on, Samantha, they're kind of repackaging of existing programs that we're already paying for and maybe we could use more effectively. So we're not necessarily talking about 100% brand new ideas here for a lot of the items. Now, speaking of ideas that are not 100% brand new, uh, the higher Michigan legislation, what are your early thoughts about that? Uh, Especially because some think tanks uh, claim that none of the six companies to receive $200 million in awards from the original Good Jobs for Michigan program, which was overseen by the Rick Snyder administration, which the higher Michigan program would ultimately be a rebranded resurrection of that, uh, ultimately said that they did not actually deliver the verified jobs based on state data. Uh, is that your own firm? Is that how your own firm remembers the program? Well, so the higher Michigan legislation is, I think, an effort to do better than the past attempt and keep companies here once they start growing. We have a nagging problem here in Michigan where folks are able to take advantage of our startup support and resources, and then they leave for places like Colorado or California and hire hundreds of employees there. If done properly, we want to make it possible for them to stay stay here and hire here. The reason for the focus in these on the small and second stage businesses is due to some recent data review from the Grow Michigan effort that showed that a significant number of the startups leave Michigan once their businesses become viable for real growth. So it's an an effort to keep those here. And when we think about um, some of the startups in Michigan in particular, 
the entrepreneurial effort and that idea may have come from a student who was educated at one of our R1 universities, you know, the URC, MSU, U of M, and Wayne State. And if they're accomplishing, you know, patented work, we definitely want them to have the opportunity to keep their business here. So if you had to make some guesses, how do you make a new incarnation of, you know, what once was the good jobs for Michigan, which will now be higher Michigan? Uh, If you had to make a guess, what would be some things needed to be put on the table to make it the best fit for 2024, the new reality we're living in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the criteria for what your startup is, is it truly viable? Are are they going to be in business 10 years from now? Are they providing a service that our economy needs and will benefit from, you know, in a positive way? I I think not all new technologies are necessarily positive, and some certainly are. So if you consider that carefully, it can be quite a benefit. You know, and we've learned the hard way, verifying that the jobs will really be uh, for folks that live, work, and play inside the state of Michigan and have a long-term interest in, in working at that company and continuing to grow and make sure making sure there's a return on the investment. Could you give us and our listeners some examples of what you would view as a viable company idea right now? So I think in Michigan, we have two main areas where we could really focus and grow. For example, we've been uh, an international automotive industry hub. If we want to remain an international automotive industry hub, which we are still indeed today, I know a lot of people feel like we're not, but for example, you know, I have a colleague who works with auto manufacturers internationally a lot, and he was reminding me the other day, you know, I can go to Detroit and I can meet with seven, eight or nine auto manufacturers from all over the world in a couple of days and be really efficient. If I travel to China or Japan, I have to spend several more days and travel all over the place to get my meetings done. So we are still um, an automotive hub. And if we want to continue that, we can't be afraid of progress. We're going to need to invest in um, battery and other types of facilities that support the vehicles of the future. And so businesses that support that pipeline and are innovating and providing components of that pipeline, I think would be very viable in Michigan. I think another um, opportunity for us is to potentially become a semiconductor hub. And so if we uh, allow progress there and potentially get ourselves ready for the next big win in that industry, the companies that are innovating and feeding that pipeline would be very viable here as well. You're firm also previewed what could potentially be the impacts on electric vehicle, the growth of electric vehicle ownership now that the governor is proposing $2,000 rebates to purchase a new EV. What type of effects could that have on road funding? Uh, Could you let me know a little bit more of your insights on that? Yeah, so there's been a lot of back and forth on registration fees for electric vehicles in in particular. And I'm not necessarily saying that they should be higher. But I can say for sure that they aren't going to replace the road funding revenue that that driver previously was contributing, that that driver previously was experiencing as their share, their fair share of the burden of road tax revenue. Sales and excise taxes on motor fuel was a fair and effective way to fund the roads many decades ago. But Michiganders are driving more fuel efficient vehicles 
and slowly but surely also purchasing electric vehicles. We, we need some sense of urgency on implementing other mechanisms for road funding that are tied to road usage and tied to energy consumption. We just have to do it. Uh, speaking about electric vehicles, uh, what are you seeing in the numbers of electric vehicle purchases? Obviously, this is a revamped proposal from what the governor introduced uh, a while ago, where she wanted a $2,500 rebate just for electric vehicles, but now she's expanded it to all vehicles. Uh, what are you seeing as far as consumer uh, demand in electric vehicles? And I'm And I'm wondering if that is the reason why she revamped this proposal. So we looked at consumer penetration data of electric vehicles in several states, especially Michigan, over the years. And we've seen changes, for example, like from 3% to 6%, which might not seem significant, but it is really significant. And if, you know, in a few more years, we go from 6% to 12%, that should not be taken lightly. That is truly, truly significant. If we could get more um, charging infrastructure, I think that would really move the needle on consumer willingness to use electric vehicles. But as you know, there are, there are many other hurdles. It's slow but sure. I think we have to be careful on the way these incentives are applied. I think it's a little bit unfortunate that many of the incentives aren't really hitting um, the households that could use them the most, early adopters of electric vehicles. Um, have tended to be um, those that could afford them. We are starting to see more mid-priced mid vehicles hit the market, and that is great. I think an incentive um, package on those is a good thing. But, um, you know, we have seen states spend tens of millions of dollars on electric vehicle incentive packages that we know went 100% to folks buying a vehicle over $80,000 those purchasers probably did not need that incentive. So we need to make sure it's it's balanced. Do rebates of this nature even make any positive contributions to the economy? Because I mean, the way that you kind of described it, it just kind of seems like it's just a bonus coupon to people who already had the means to make those purchases. You know, I live in a bubble of the world where I have several friends who work at MSU. And because they know they can rely on the char charging infrastructure, they certainly have timed their electric vehicle purchases to take advantage of the, re the rebates and incentive plans that have been offered in recent years and certainly would not have been incentivized if not for these perks from MFSU and from the state of Michigan. So I think, I think they can work if they're done well. I worry a little bit about our friends at auto dealers uh, trying to be the ones who front the cost. Um, I think the governor mentioned that these would be rebates that happen at the point of purchase. So basically what that can mean is the dealer who um, some people think of just, you know, a distant arm of the OEM, but your dealer and the people who work there are your friends and neighbors. And that means they're fronting the cost. So for example, if they sell 50 vehicles with this $2,000 rebate, they might be kind of fronting the state $100,000 and waiting to be reimbursed. And that can be a, a big chunk of change for your, you know, down the road GM, Ford, or Chevy dealer. So I worry about those a little bit. Um, but at the same time, if you if you do the incentive in a way that the consumer has to front it and then wait to get reimbursed, you know, you kind of reverse that affordability there as well. So it's a rock in a hard place, but they have to be implemented carefully for them to work.
my final question for you, Tyler Seal of the Anderson Economic Group. If you had to describe the state of the state, your state of the state experience in three words, what three words would they be? Oh, so just my reaction. Um, positive ideas, um, a, a little lacking in detail, but um, on the whole, nice to listen to a, a feel-good speech in the middle of winter. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone. Again, that is Tyler Theo with the Anderson Economic Group. Thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you. Take care. Now for our final segment of the MERS Monday podcast is State Senator Stephanie Chang, a Detroit Democrat and one of the lead sponsors of some Democrats' latest water affordability legislation, along with State Senator Rosemary Bayer and State Representative Donovan McKinney. The leader, two are not here, but again, we are joined by Senator Chang. Ultimately, the package would create a first-of-its-kind low-income water residential affordability program fund within the state's Department of Treasury, which will be a statewide welfare program intended to assist low-income residents at or below 200% of the federal poverty guidelines who are struggling to cover their water bills. A little later in this segment, we will also be joined by Oakland County Water Commissioner Jim Nash, who served in the role since initially being elected by his community in 2012. For those who tuned in to last week's episode, we were joined by Macomb County Public Works Commissioner Candace Miller, who has led local opposition against a package questioning why water consumers should pay a proposed $2 monthly fine to contribute to the new low-income water residential affordability program fund when already those in southeast Michigan receiving water distribution and wastewater treatment services from the Great Lakes Water Authority pay 0.5% of wholesale costs to back a similar regional-based water residential assistance program, or RAP. Senator Chang, first off, thank you so much for joining us today. And just to dive into questions, when you heard that interview with Candace Miller, and when you have been dealing with the rise of local opposition to the package, what is your ultimate response here? Yeah, well, thanks for, for this. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, first, I just want to back up and remind everyone listening in just how important it is that every single household in Michigan has access to water that they can afford. Um, you know, we're the Great Lakes State, and over the past few years, we have worked on water issues in a really great, productive, bipartisan way, and I'm uh, really hopeful that we'll be able to do the same here. Um, we know that water rates have increased basically double um, across the state over the past few decades. And so uh, we've got a lot of folks who are struggling with their water bills. And I will say that includes Macomb County. Uh, you know, we've got the data from 2020. We've got some data from the existing RAP program. There is a lot of need and the need is only increasing. It is not going down. Um, there are a lot of families who are struggling right now to make ends meet. And so the idea of ensuring that that every single person has access to a water bill they can afford is is one, really critical, and two, actually very publicly supported. Um, and in terms of some of the local voices that are uh, out there right now, I actually want to give a shout out to the Macomb County Board of Commissioners. Uh, this week, they were slated to take up an, uh, a resolution opposing 
uh, our legislation, but uh, two Republicans joined all the Democrats in actually voting to table that resolution. Uh, we're seeing action from the Wayne County Commission and the Oakland County Commission with supportive resolutions. Uh, Washtenaw and Ingham are also working on supportive resolutions. So uh, we actually see a lot of support that's building across the state um, because people take the time to learn the details um, and understand how important it is that we pass this water affordability legislation. Uh, we've got their support. And so we're really excited to continue to build that momentum. If you reside in a community where there are things like Gliwa's RAP program or something similar that also serves low-income residents struggling with water bills, now, my I think my question really is, is that if this gets approved and this $2 fee is established, will all those other programs no longer need to exist? So that way they're just depending exclusively on this uh, fee? So one of the things that was, I think is really, really important is that, you know, in Michigan, one of the things that we try to balance is knowing that local communities, know, local communities uh, deserve to have an opportunity to run a program or come up with their own innovative solutions if they are able to and if they have the capacity to. Um, so to us, that was really important to allow uh, Gliwa to continue its program, but through these bills, we would actually basically be helping uh, to ensure that the RAP program gets bigger, gets better, helps more people uh, by ensuring that it has the funding that it's needed to continue. You know, I am really, really concerned um, because Gliwa has said, you know, with certainty that they, you know, don't necessarily have the the financial stability to continue RAP beyond two years. Um, but we know that the need is very much there. And it's so critical that we uh, continue that RAP program. Like I said, Macomb County, they've got a lot of folks, you know, in my own part of Macomb County, in my district, you know, Warren has over 615, has 615 people, uh, part of the RAP program, Sterling Heights, over 100, um, and the list goes on. Uh, there are a lot of folks who are counting on us to be able to get this done so that RAP can continue in a, in a way that actually helps people pay down more arrearages, help with more plumbing repairs to get folks' water bills down. And again, get to that end result where if you are 200% of the federal poverty level or below, you will get a lower water bill uh, because you would qualify for the program, you could apply, uh, you get into it and then actually be eligible for those arrearage forgiveness as well as plumbing repairs if uh, to make sure that the water you're paying for actually is getting to your tap and uh, ultimately is something where I think we're really going to be able to help a lot of families uh, throughout you know, the Gleewa region, but really across this whole state, um, because this is not a urban issue. This is an urban, suburban, rural issue that affects every single corner of this state. Well, I wanted to touch on that with my question, Senator. Where else are we seeing problems with people paying for their water bills? In rural areas, people have their own wells and are not in a municipal system. So they just have to pay to get the well dug and then they have water. Um, so where else are we seeing problems with people not being able to pay for their water? Um, so this is actually a huge, huge problem all across the state. And one of the things that I'm really grateful for is in 2020, during COVID, the federal government um, sent down money to the states to basically help pay down um, the many, many millions of dollars that people were behind total across the state um, and other states um, with their water bills. 
we found that in Michigan, there were over 317,000 Michigan households that were behind on their water bills. I actually recently pulled some of those numbers again. And, you know, we're talking about Traverse City, we're talking about Alpena, we're talking about Grand Rapids, tiny villages in the UP, you know, suburbs across Macomb County, literally everywhere. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned wells. That's a really critical component of what we're talking about here. Um, I've been talking with a number of my Republican colleagues about, uh, you know, the problems in their districts that are very rural. And uh, we recognize that there's a lot of folks who have old wells that need some repair. Um, so we've had a lot of really good productive conversations over the past couple of weeks on trying to come up with a solution to actually include private wells uh, in what we're doing, because we recognize that there are a lot of low-income households that also uh, are going to need our help. And we want to be able to help as many people as we can across the state. Joining us also on this interview is Jim Nash, the Oakland County Water Resources Commissioner. Uh, we wanted to talk to you specifically about a comment that uh, Macomb County, Candace Miller said in our last episode, she made it sound like Oakland County is a net giver to the current program that Oakland County residents are basically subsidizing the water bills for folks in the city of Detroit. And why would they want to participate in a statewide program? Uh, can you explain why this would make the why a statewide program makes sense? Certainly. Um, first of all, the uh, the RAP uh, water assistance uh, water residential assistance program that that Candace Miller was talking about has changed dramatically in the past year and a half or so. Um, not quite a year and a half. Originally, they started out with, uh, and again, it's only funded basically. $4.2 million for a system that serves 4 million people. So it's very limited funding in terms of how it can affect. But uh, initially it was much weaker. Uh, it was a $25 uh, a monthly uh, subsidy and they could take off $600 from uh, from a, their rearages uh, at the end of the year if you've kept up that whole year. This is, this is tuned towards income. So with lower income at 200% of uh, poverty level, we would have basically you couldn't, they wouldn't pay more than 3% of their family income towards that bill, basically within the EPA guidelines for what it should be. Uh, at 150% of poverty, uh, poverty rate, then it goes down to 2% of, of just to make sure that they can afford it. It's one of those ex things that keeps people in their home or not. So we have to make sure it's done this way. Candace is running off kind of old figures. That was under the old system we were giving it back. Um, they just announced the Great Lakes Water Authority that for uh, Macomb County, they're going to be at their maximum later this year, not very much later this year. And that's about 230 families out of 800,000 people that live in the county. So it really has a very limited impact. And again, it, it, it's got a time limit to it. It's got much more... Uh, it's geared towards folks who are, are handicapped or who are elderly who are on there permanently. So this is something that's kind of limited for our for the folks within our system. In Oakland County, we're going to reach our maximum probably later this year, um, and then we're stuck there. We can't help any more families. So just by how much it's increased since they changed their system, we went from about 15%, using about 15% under the old system. And again, this year we'll be at the max. So the new system is much more effective for the families. And we can't forget that the systems themselves, the local community utilities, depend on those ratepayers. If they have a budget and they're they're off by a couple of million dollars from, from collections, that next year, either they raid their rates more or they don't do projects that need to be done. This is what's going to help all those communities have their utilities where they need to be. 
We call it the true cost of service. If you're not, if you're delaying projects, if you're not doing what you need to do, you pay for it down the road. That's the big issue. And, you know, my office operates and maintains 22 communities. We, we are very familiar with these systems. Uh, Candace does not operate any community. She's never operated a water and sewer system. So she's never had that direct experience. I have town halls. I have meetings with individuals where we talk about how we can help with affordability. We did a, a two-year study of around the world, around the country, even around the world, and our own stakeholders here locally. And we came to these conclusions, presented a report that Senator Chang has really taken into heart. And she had her own you know, stakeholder group from around the state working on this. It's a very important, well-thought-out program. And I think it's the only chance we have uh, to, to catch up to this issue. It works for the energy companies. It can work for the utilities. Just to deliver some clarity to our listeners, what is the current state of water shutoffs in Michigan? Two of the communities, we're, we're still not doing shutoffs right now. The two that we worked with most closely, Pontiac and Royal Oak Township. Um, but, but the other communities that we operate and maintain went back to uh, shutoffs in, after the pandemic was over. Um, so we've been doing shutoffs. There was a significant backlog for a while when we took back over again. Um, again, this is this hurts the local communities and it, and it hurts the, uh, the the ratepayers themselves. So it took a while to get over that. We, we worked with them um, as a community and again as individuals. We've changed how we do our work now, uh, especially with this new change to uh, the RAP program, that we're much more able to pass these on to folks that they can get that help right away. If we can intervene before they get a bigger rearage, before they owe a thousand dollars. That's money that we don't have to help them pay. And it's money that the company, that the utility themselves never lost. They, they still have that money in their budget. So everybody benefits when we're doing these things. Is it okay if I jump in on the shot offs? Yeah, please do. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I'm really proud of is that, you know, we had water advocates and water providers come together who, you know, in years past may not have been on the same page, right? But eight months of work group meetings uh, coming up with these solutions. And I'm really proud of all of the bills in the package, but especially proud of the shutoff protection uh, bill because it basically lays out, you know, the requirements, giving some flexibility to providers, but ensuring that there's four notices prior to a shutoff, all with the intention of ensuring that people get all the information they need to be able to get into a low-income water residential affordability program. And we even built in a process for triage. So if someone's not getting what they need to getting on top of what they need to do, actually setting up a meeting with the caseworker, finding out what is happening with this family, what are the challenges that they're facing, and how can we get them into this program, uh, which was the great suggestion of, you know, some of our advocates with the People's Water Board, working with community action agencies to develop the language here. And uh, I'm really excited about the work that we can do to really help make sure that families get the water that they need, but also look at what else is going on uh, to make sure that we get them the services that they need as well. I just want to provide some clarity, though. So the intention here isn't necessarily to eliminate GLIWA's RAP program in exchange for a statewide program. It seems to me that in, the intention is to ultimately make the RAP program bigger with an add-on of this state program. Yeah, so just to be totally crystal clear, right? So GLIWA's got a RAP program... Detroit's got its lifeline program. They can continue with those programs if they so choose. Um, but this 
legislation will help to ensure that the funding is there to, as Commissioner Nash mentioned, make those programs as uh, as effective as as impactful as possible, and also financially sustainable. Um, you know, we love the Lifeline program, we love the RAP program, but both of those programs are very aware uh, that they don't have the funding to continue. And I'm especially worried about the seniors that that Commissioner Nash mentioned earlier, right? Those seniors and people on disability. Um, that we have said, you can be on this program for as long as you need, because we know you're on a fixed income. Your income's never going to go up. So you need to be able to have an affordable water bill um, and recognizing your financial situation. If we don't pass these bills, those seniors and those people on disability are going to be the ones that are most harmed. Senator Chang, were you discouraged when Governor Whitmer did not mention these bills during her state of the state? No, you know, I think that obviously we've got such a long list of things that we need to do in 2024. Uh, there was no possible way that the governor was going to be able to mention every single issue that's critical. Um, but one thing that I am very encouraged about is that, you know, there was a, a pretty strong theme of making life more affordable for Michiganders, whether it's pre-K, whether it's community college, buying a new car, caregiving. Um, I would say that affordable water bills, prescription drugs, other things like that all fall within that mix of making sure that Michigan families are have the opportunity to thrive. Um, and so, you know, whether it's someone's electricity bill, their water bill, all of these things, um, you know, I know that a lot of my colleagues are very eager uh, to work as hard as we can to get this done. We need to make sure all of these things are, are understood by everybody, that, that this is something that we really need to recognize. A lot of people don't recognize the issues. So we, we, we're trying to make sure that everybody understands that. When when the uh, meat program for, for energy, this basically what this is designed after passed, it had wide bipartisan support and very, very strong public support, as, as does this one now. So it, people understand, you know, everybody, everybody gets it. People can fall behind for just lightest things sometimes. And if we're not there to help them, we're in trouble. And one of the things that we did at my office was we, we really looked at how we responded to callers and we've changed our policies to be much more empathetic to to not just you know be that i don't want to call them because they're just going to jump on me about things we're trying to make sure that they understand that they have resources they can go to and the first thing we talk about when they say and they call because they have a late bill is we have resources if you qualify you can be part of that so it's it's a different kind of outlook than it was used to be before um, and we need to make sure folks understand that too that they can call us and we're going to help them what do you think? And either any one of you can answer this. I mean, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions with the issue of water affordability in our state? Well, I think, you know, over I think that this misconception is going away. But I know that in years past, one of the greatest misconceptions was like, oh, this is just an urban issue. Um, but we now have numbers that show that this is definitely an everywhere issue. Um, and I think that's why we saw such so much bipartisan support in 2020 and that lame duck session to uh, pass that bipartisan uh, shut off moratorium bill during COVID, because we literally gave people the spreadsheet that said, here are the hundreds or sometimes thousands of people in the various townships and cities or villages in your rural district, in your suburban district, in your urban district, and just really showed people this is happening in your district too. Um, and the more I talk to colleagues on both sides of the aisle, I think there's a growing recognition that we absolutely need to do something. Um, and so I think that that was one of the misconceptions. And then I think, you know, unfortunately, there's there's um, some misconceptions around the funding mechanism around this 
proposal and what it will mean for people. Um, and I just really want to remind everyone listening that uh, for folks who are 200% of the federal poverty level or below, which for a family of four is 60,000, you will get a lower water bill because you will be able to get into this program and uh, the end result will be a, a bill that, that you can actually afford. Um, and so I'm really, really hopeful that we can continue to get people the facts because when people have the facts, they generally support what we're doing. And we see that with the polling as well, with 67% supporting the affordability proposal, 60% supporting the funding proposal, two to one basis support there, um, and almost 90% supporting our Shutoff Protection Act. I totally agree with you. You were talking about urban and rural and small communities can be both urban and rural. And they're often the hardest to get anything done without really hitting the ratepayers. If you have a thousand customers in your uh, in your community, and I have a community like that, and you do a million dollar project, it's a thousand dollars per house. And that that can really hit the, uh, even if we're doing it on, on bonding. And, and a lot of these communities all across Michigan have very old infrastructure. And a lot of them are going to be also working on these lead and copper pipes that have to be replaced. And that's a significant amount of money. We're estimating in some of our communities, it could be up to nine or $10,000 a home to do that. So all of that gets paid for by ratepayers unless we have this outside funding. We've had a significant amount, but the needs are so much more than that. SEMCOG, the Southeast Michigan Council of Governments, says we should be spending just on water infrastructure $2 billion a year for the next 20 years to catch up to what we need to be. And that's not going to all, like, the ratepayers just can't bear all of that. So we have to make sure that the least among them are going to be able to get the water they need to survive without, without paying way more than they should out of their income that they already are stressed under. So this is the kind of thing we have to protect both the, both communities and the ratepayers. And this really does both. But, you know, let's be let's be transparent about some of the scenarios right now. I mean, Candace Miller is very popular in Macomb County. You have a lot of big popular Macomb County jurisdictions that have passed opposition resolutions to this. Uh, Senator Chang, my last question for you is, do you think you have the votes in the Senate to get this done in your chamber? Well, we're having conversations literally every day, um, and I feel very confident that we will ultimately have the votes to get this done. Um, and obviously, conversations continuing. Um, but one of the things that I think is really, really important is, one, you know, in talking with my Republican colleagues, there's a lot of folks who understand that we need to get something done, uh, constantly trying to figure out what are the details to ensure that we get this absolutely right. Uh, one of the things I will also say is that I represent part of Macomb County too, right? I have a Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb district. Um, and when I talk to my residents in my part of Macomb County, they support what we're doing. Um, and again, I, I've also talked to city council members in multiple in both Sterling Heights and Warren, and I know that there are a number who are very supportive. Um, and I also talked to, have talked with uh, I won't name them here, but I've talked to local officials who regret their votes on uh, some of the opposition resolutions because they simply were not provided uh, all of the facts. Um, so I'm really excited that, you know, we're we've got a couple of town halls coming up in Macomb County, uh, one in Warren that I'm hosting with Representative McKinney. And then also there is a town hall coming up in Mount Clemens. Uh, where, again, that's a community that is going to be greatly impacted in a positive way by this legislation. Um, and what I'm hopeful will result from that is, one, of course, really important conversation, but two, uh, a greater understanding and support from the community uh, for these proposals when they really uh, have a chance to learn all the information, not just a one-sided presentation. 
we're running short on time here, but I had one quick question here. Uh, would you support, e either you support a community being allowed to opt out of this program? Right now, I am very much in the same place that I was when I when I talked to Commissioner Miller uh, in the fall, which is that the way that this works is that uh, we've got to do this as an entire state. Uh, we do the same thing for other statewide uh, programs to help low-income families. We've got to do the same thing for water. Human beings need water to live, uh, and we are surrounded by fresh water. Um, it is our duty as, as uh, elected officials in this state to make sure uh, that we're doing everything we can to give folks the opportunity to thrive. And by making sure that we have folks both paying in and benefiting all across the state is the way that this is going to work. I would say that, you know, this is basically exactly like the Michigan Energy Assistance Program, and that has been very successful. It has been well within budgets. It has been praised by the public. It's something that works and it's very popular. And I think this will be in the same way. Again, this helps utilities in your home cities, in your home communities. This is going to help them do a better job, and it's going to help your residents, your fellow residents of your communities, better afford the water they need. This is, it's just the best thing we can do in the long run. But with the MEAT program, it does allow opt-outs for utilities. So right now, the only opt-out for MEAP is if, the, if that utility uh, decides to not do shutoffs. In our conversations with local jurisdictions across the state, Republican-led, Democratic-led, there are a number of townships and cities who do shot us as a last resort, right? They, it's not something that they're actively trying to do, but it is something that they do. We're, we were very intentional in our legislation to not completely ban shutoffs, uh, but we build in lots and lots of protections and notice requirements. Um, so the MEEP program, yes, there is an opt-out provision, but it is only for utilities who choose to not do any shutoffs whatsoever. And from our conversations that we've had with um, local officials across the state, I am not totally sure that that's the right fit for this for this issue. And I agree. This is, again, as an operator of systems, we, we, we didn't want to have it just an absolute ban of shutoffs because it just doesn't work in the long run. We've got to do something that every step of the way we get them help if we can get it to them. But we can't just say we'll never shut off water. It just doesn't work in the long run. Senator Stephanie Chang and Oakland County Water Commissioner uh, Jim Nash, thank you all so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate your interest. Thank you now. And that is going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. I would to thank our guests for our inaugural post-state of the state conservative versus progressive matchup, Executive Director Abby Mitch of Michigan Rising Action and Marino Taylor II of the Fund My Future Coalition. Also, I would like to give a huge thanks to Tyler Thiel of the Anderson Economic Group, State Senator Stephanie Chang, and Oakland County Water Commissioner Jim Nash. Thank you all for joining us today. I am also tremendously thankful for the MERS editor, Kyle Malin. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast was provided by Mark Bayshore of Mark Bayshore Audio and Okemets, which is responsible for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next week, I am Samantha Schreiber. Samantha Schreiber.